Let's pray again. Our God and Father, thank you for the powerful word of assurance and perspective that you are the God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Thank you that your anger does not last forever. Thank you that you do not deal with us as our sins so deserve. If you were to deal with us in that way, we would be under your condemnation and even judgment and torment at this moment because our sins are great. Some are known. Some have been hidden and kept secret from human eyes, but all are known to you. Nothing is hidden from your sight. But in your great mercy, you have not given us what our sins deserve. You have not repaid us as the psalmist says, according to our iniquities. But rather, you have demonstrated a patience and steadfast love that reaches beyond the boundaries of our comprehension. How high are the heavens above the earth? Wherever that boundary is fixed, that's how great your steadfast love is for those who fear you. How far is the east from the west? Truly, there is no measurement that could be fixed to that distance, but that's how far in your mercy you have removed the sins of those who have sought your forgiveness and come to you for relief. How thankful we are that you liken your compassion to that of a father who tenderly yearns over a child who runs to the need, who embraces the hurt, who protects and shields and heals, always remembering the weakness of his child. And yet your compassion is far greater than even that human picture. Thank you that you have never forgotten that we are created out of the dust of the ground and that our frame really is one of weakness and dependence. We forget those things. We fancy ourselves to be our own gods, sufficient in and of ourselves, smart enough, resourceful enough, strong enough to meet life's daily needs, to plan a path into the future that would lead to a kind of prosperity or security, and yet the reality is we are not able to do any one of those things for ourselves. We are not our own gods. We need you as our one true God. So in these brief days that we have on planet Earth, oh, how we ask that you would bring our hearts and souls into that sweet submission and relationship with you, our Creator God, with you, our redeeming God, that we might know the joy of life in Christ, that we might know the relief of a full and free forgiveness of sins, that we might know the power of your Spirit who comes to dwell in all those who put their faith in you, that we might know rest and peace because, as we have just been singing, you are good so let the goodness of Jesus move through this assembly today. 
Let it be heard in every word that is spoken. Let it be felt in every movement of the Spirit. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do that work we're so desperate for. And let your blessing rest upon us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, when we were last in Paul's letter to the Romans way back in August, it feels like much longer than that, at least for me personally, we were drawing some important conclusions out of chapter 8 regarding God's sovereign purpose to save many. That's a little word that's easy to pass over in Romans 8, 28, and 29, where God reveals that his purpose in Christ is to bring many sons, many brothers, is how Paul writes it, into the household of God. And he doesn't use that term exclusive of the ladies in the assembly. It's just a general term that was very common in Greek in those times for people. And so we were looking at the end of Romans 8, And a number of truths that flow out of that. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Romans 9. We'll come to that in just a few moments. But I am looking at the tail end of Romans 8 to kind of summarize some things there and and get us back up to speed. Now, rightly understood, those particular truths that Paul was setting before us of God's sovereign purpose to save many... And, and the Roman saints were among those that he was speaking to, encouraging them that before they even had a thought of God, God was thinking about them in foreknowledge and with, with intent, the predestination that we spoke of. And out of that plan, God called them. That is, he issued a divine summons to sinful people like you and me saying, come to me for the forgiveness of your sins. Come to me for the righteousness you can never earn or merit on your own. Come to me and be saved. That's the call. And then Paul went on to say that those that God calls in that way, he justifies. And those whom he justifies or declares to be righteous, he glorifies. So there's this golden chain of salvation, if you will. And when you look at it from our perspective, you have a profound sense that God began it, he continued it, he's the one who completes it, and there's no credit belonging to you or me in this work of salvation. I know that makes some people nervous, but it should not. It should actually hearten you and strengthen you. But there were five particular um, uh, uh, benefits, or I, I should say there were, there were five particular points of impact, if you will, of that great truth. And these were some of the last things that I shared with you uh, as we were wrapping up Romans 8. First of all, that, that work of God, the sovereignty of God and salvation ought to produce several things in us. And the first is humility. It ought to just put us on our faces before God that he has been so gracious to us, not giving us what we deserve, not even just abandoning us to our sin and leaving us in our spiritual darkness and blindness, but he's rescued us, humility. The second thing is assurance. God has not forgotten you. Your life may be difficult at this very moment. There may be great things of confusion that you're wrestling with right now, but God is, in fact, as Paul said at the end of Romans 8, causing all things to work together for an eternal good in the lives of his people, the ones that he foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified. Number three, there's responsibility. Because as we will see in the coming chapters, the ordained means of of spreading the good news is through you and me. 
people like you and me open our mouths and say, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the cross. Let me tell you about the forgiveness of sins. So there's responsibility. God has called us to be part of this great work he is doing. A fourth thing that this truth produces for us is personal holiness. God has revealed his intention, and and you can read through at the end of chapter eight. He wants you to be like Jesus. That's the whole point of saving you. We pursue holiness because God has saved us. And then number five, personal mission. God uses the proclamation of the gospel as the means of calling and summoning people to his kingdom. I can't wait for what lies ahead. It's gonna take us a number of weeks to get there, but even in chapters nine, 10, and 11, there are some of the most powerful statements concerning mission, evangelism, in all of scripture. Now, chapters nine through 11 should really be read as a whole. Actually, the whole letter should be read as a whole, right? It's one letter, a long letter. Uh, From start to finish, you could read Romans in about an hour and 15 minutes. Some of you would read faster, some a little slower, but that would just give you some sense. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 in particular really need to be read as a whole and then preached as a whole, but that would be a really, really long message. And I know some of you give me a little bit of a hard time for how long I preach as it is, but you know that's between you and God. Um, my conscience is not bound to you, it's to the Lord, so, you know. These three chapters are a lengthy discussion of Israel's place in salvation history and specifically how Paul reconciles the fact of what he just said at the end of chapter eight that many brothers are gonna be brought to Jesus and yet in Paul's experience and even for the Romans, comparatively speaking, very few Jews were responding to the gospel at that point. And, And it was creating questions, legitimate questions. Well, how can you say, Paul, that Jesus Christ will be the firstborn among many brothers when so few Jews are responding? And so he's actually gonna work through a number of questions in the coming chapters that are really helpful to give perspective on that. It's also an important point for us to consider in our day when there seem to be, comparatively speaking, few people responding to the gospel as we're sharing it right here in this uh, particular community. We're thankful for the recent professions of faith that God has given us here at Gospel Hope, but I I wouldn't describe it yet as a great awakening. Not like our nation has known at a couple of key points in the past, certainly not like the 1700s when God used uh, preachers like George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers and a host of others to bring about a genuine spiritual awakening that radically altered the, the culture of the 13 colonies. So while we're thankful for what we see, I don't know that we can say, wow, huge numbers, a great awakening. But there is hope here, and there's great motivation for us to remain faithful in the purpose. Now, in these three chapters, I think there stands one of the greatest distillations, I'll call it, of Old Testament prophecies, where as we study this, we're gonna see Paul quoting uh, from Moses in the books of of Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. He's gonna grab a couple of prophecies from Isaiah. He's gonna reach into the book of Hosea. He's gonna quote Joel at one particular point. He's gonna pull in Psalms of David, and he's gonna distill them into this powerful expression of hopeful expectation, even though with human eyes, he doesn't see the kind of things that he wants to see. The church at Rome doesn't see the kinds of things it wants to see yet, but it still moves them uh, in faithful evangelism and outreach, church planting, all kinds of things that flow out of this. 
And I think one of the griefs of my heart is that for all the theological debate arising out of this portion of Scripture, because let's be honest and forthright, it does make some really challenging statements regarding God's choice, God's sovereignty. But to, but to become absorbed or lost in some kind of theological debate or all the nuances there are there is to miss the larger point of how God's word fuels the heart of an apostle like Paul and how it ought to fuel the heart of people like us to go spread the good news with expectation and hope. And my prayer as we enter this section of Romans is that the evangelistic flame that God has already kindled here at Gospel Hope Church. I know it exists because I see it. I was in a conversation with, with one of our church members just Friday morning. Um, and we were just sharing and getting caught up. And one of the things that she was saying is, oh, please pray for two of my friends. We've had a, remarkable conversations about Jesus. And while they haven't come to see their need of him as their personal Lord and Savior, it's been amazing how God has, has opened those conversations. And I think, oh, God, just fan that flame. But my prayer is that even through this portion of Romans, our hearts would be stoked to such a white, hot heat that Utah would, in fact, awaken and a state that really never has experienced a great awakening would be able to say oh look what God is doing so that's my prayer and I want you to pray it with me now look at Romans 9 and I actually am going to take four and a half minutes to read the entire chapter and, and it, I say that because sometimes when a, when a preacher starts reading and you're not sure where he's going to end, it feels like it's just going to go on and on. But so I'm telling that, saying that for some of you so you'll just know. Okay. But it's also important for us to hear larger portions uh, from time to time. And I think this is one of them because I want you to get the sweep of it. And then I'm actually only going to focus on the first three verses before we come into the Lord's table. And so in 15 or 20 minutes, we're going we're gonna to move through um, really just the, the first paragraph, not even the first full paragraph as Paul has written it. But uh, um, listen as we read the word of the Lord and then set our hearts on it for a few minutes. This is God's word, Romans 9. The apostle Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, and now he's going to quote from Moses writing in the Old Testament, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. Again, he's quoting from Genesis. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. 
And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, that is our salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on their works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Even as I read that, I'm just tempted to, to try to preach all of it right now. Because I, I don't want you to walk out with misunderstanding or uncertainty. And even that last verse is telling because as Paul is quoting again from the Old Testament with reference to a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, that speaks of Christ. He's the stone of stumbling for the Jewish people who are saying, no, 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 we will will use our law-keeping as a means of, of attaining righteousness. And God says, you can't do that. For starters, you can't keep the law perfectly, and for you to try to earn your salvation in that way is to exclude the gift that is Christ, 
And, you know, there are many religious people even in our day who essentially say to God, no, thank you, I'll find my own way to your heaven, I'll find my own way to your presence, and God stands ever before us saying, no, Jesus is the only way. Now, that's really what's at stake right here. And yet, despite the hardness of heart of, of the Jewish nation in Paul's day, despite the hardness of heart of someone like Pharaoh, who continued to hold his fist in the face of God and reject his words of warning and, and reject his commands uh, to release Israel. Yet God inserts himself into culture after culture, into heart after heart to saying, I will be merciful. And that's what gives us great hope. Because there are all kinds of people on planet Earth today who aren't really looking for the mercy of God, but God rolls up his sleeves on this day, as it were, and says, but I'm gonna show him mercy. All kinds of people around us, people you know, their friends, your, your, your family members who say, I'm fine, I don't, I don't need God, I don't need Jesus, I'm not in need of his compassion, but from God's perspective, he knows that they do, and he is going to work. That's actually the bigger point here. That's actually at the heart of what Paul is writing here. Now let's go back to verses one, two, and three, and I want you to, just by way of introduction and for about 10 minutes here, meditate with me on the heart of Paul, which actually reveals to us the heart of Christ. When he says in verse one, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. That, that's, that's in, in modern terminology, uh, at least when I was a kid, when we were really earnest and sincere, we would say things like this, which many of you have said before, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And then you knew whatever was coming next, you know, was gospel truth, right? I mean, you just could not invoke a more serious, sobering oath as a child than that whole thing, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, which, which is really macabre, isn't it? I, I don't know what that's about. I'm sure there's some cultural context. I never bothered to explore that, but those are serious words. Well, these are even more sincere and serious, and you can see what Paul is doing. First, affirming positively. What I'm telling you is the truth. And, and then he affirms it in the negative. I am not lying. We, we ought to sit up a little straighter and pay attention to what he's about to say then, right? Here it comes. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And, and now he even speaks to his conscience. You know, a year ago we did a brief five-part series on the Christian conscience. And one of the things that we learned from the scriptures is that the, your conscience, as God has created it, is designed to be his witness in your soul. Your conscience actually doesn't function with, it, with its own authority. Sometimes we confuse that with the Holy Spirit or the presence of God or his word. Your conscience will always answer to the highest authority it perceives. And if your conscience is governed by the word of God, then it will always answer to that authority. If your conscience is governed by cultural issues or, or cultural teaching or your family background, it's gonna answer to that authority. Now, Paul's conscience functions under the authority of God Almighty and his word. And that becomes apparent from the, the course even of chapter nine as it unfolds for us. And so Paul is actually, again, reinforcing the seriousness of what he is saying when he actually pens these words, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That's the sphere in which this is operating. So it went from 
really significant and serious where he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying, and now says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Daily, Paul is living with the reality that many of his brothers, his kinsmen as he describes them, because he's a Jew himself, many of them stand outside of the faith of Jesus Christ and actually stand under the curse and condemnation of God for their sins. That's what generates this exceedingly great sorrow and unceasing anguish. That, that is pain uh, of a very deep and personal nature. For those words sorrow and anguish have reference to an internal distress. It's pain and distress that is caused by the reality that his brothers live under condemnation. He touched on this earlier in Romans. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all come short of the glory of God. We all fall short of that standard. There's only one way to achieve that standard of righteousness that God requires, and that's by faith. And what Paul is wrestling with is that he sees so many people that he loves dearly and knows personally who have said no to Jesus Christ and are working, many of them, really diligently and feverishly and sincerely to find their own pathway to heaven, but Paul knows they're not gonna make it unless something changes within them. And that pains him. That pains him, even though he's just written in Romans 8, those that God foreknew, he predestined and called and justified and glorified. He's absolutely certain of God's sovereignty in salvation, but he's also wrestling with the reality of people that he knows and loves. I wonder if you feel that kind of pain when you think about your family and friends who stand outside of Christ. Sometimes to ease that great sorrow and unceasing anguish, we ignore God's word or we reinterpret God's truth or we even create alternative pathways of faith. But to dilute the words of Jesus or to dismiss the words of Jesus is ultimately to position ourselves personally or others that we know for ultimate destruction. Jesus himself said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He didn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. And to even reinforce those powerful words, he, in his next word, says, no one comes to the Father but by me. I don't know if you've ever tried to make a journey from one place to another and follow the map you had been given, and yet the map either wasn't current, and even today, you know, with... With the advent of GPS years ago and now Google Maps and all that, I mean, it's, it's quite a remarkable day and age. And I, I just marvel that you can even put in some really remote addresses and, and it'll take you right there. But we've become so spoiled by these things that if there are little unexpected detours or the information isn't quite accurate, you know, it gets us a block away but not to the actual doorstep, I mean, we're all like all in a rage. And if you have been in a situation where you, you know you're on the right road, but it's blocked for whatever reason, construction or something. I know even yesterday with the heavy rains, there were parts of 215 that were at, at least temporarily closed. They had to let the water drain off and like that, but you're, you're just stuck, and you're like, but this is the path, but, and, and that's the destination, but I don't know any alternative route. God in his kindness hems us in to say, there are no alternative paths. This is the way, and he's calling Jew and Gentile, 
to believe that one way. He's calling us in our generation to believe this way. And we may try to pave alternative paths to God. It might make us feel better in the short term, but it's actually a deadly error in the long term. I say this with great love. God knows my heart, but Muhammad does not lead the way to the God of the Bible. Joseph Smith does not lead the way to the Father. Taoism is not a way to the Father. The doctrines of samsara and karma are not a way to the Father and eternal life. It's that reality that creates this great weight of sorrow and anguish in Paul's conscience. And and now from here he goes on to write. Look at verse 3. He's so weighted down with this reality of the eternal destiny of people that he knows and loves who are not yet in Christ on that path of, of salvation that he says this. Let this, I mean, this is stunning. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Really? That's even more remarkable in light of where he, he just took us in Romans 8. The glories of this salvation, that the people of God have been forgiven all their sins, that we've been declared righteous forever for Christ's sake, that we've been brought into a personal, eternal, uh, vital union with God the Son himself, that we've been adopted by God the Father and given all the privileges and blessings as joint heirs with Jesus that we could ever imagine. We've received the baptism of God the Spirit whereby he comes to dwell not just alongside us, but remember in chapter eight, he dwells in us, makes his presence known to us, even teaches us to cry in sincere faith, Abba, Father, prays for us when we don't know how we ought to pray. All of these privileges at this moment, Paul says, I could wish that I myself were separated from all of those privileges and blessings and Christ himself if it would mean the salvation of my kinsmen. That is staggering to me. And as I've been meditating on this this week, I, I, I would say sincerely, I want to be at that point. I pray God will grow me. I can affirm that in one aspect, but when I begin to make it really personal, ooh, there's something in my soul that draws back from that. Some people I love dearly enough that I, I say, I, I think I could lay down my life for them. But you know, not everybody that Paul has in mind were his dear Friends, he's actually feeling this intense sorrow and pain for some of his Jewish kinsmen who have openly persecuted him, driven him out of synagogues when he has come in to share the good news of Christ. Others have beaten him. Some have stoned him. They have actively slandered him and made all kinds of false accusations, and yet those are counted among the very ones that he says, if I could, I would. And I think, what a heart. And at this point, I pause and think, you know, his heart actually beats with the same mercy and compassion of our Lord himself. Because Christ not only felt that great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart, he acted upon it. I love the words of Isaiah 53 that tell us Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was 
crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's the hero. We give Paul credit for such a tender heart for his brother and kinsman, but Christ is the one who actually placed himself under the curse of God Almighty for our sins, who experienced that what it would be to, to be separated from God the Father, abandoned in that horrific moment when on the cross of Calvary, he not only carried our sins, he became sin for us. And while Paul knew anguish in his heart, Jesus Christ carried the anguish of your sin and mine to the top of Calvary and died for it. That's why he's the only way to God. We admire Paul, but we will never worship Paul. We admire Moses, but we will never worship Moses. Jesus is in a category all his own because in his life of perfect obedience, in his death as the substitute sacrifice, And in his resurrection from the tomb, he did what none of us could ever do, but God would require all of us to do for our sins. At the end of this chapter, Paul quotes Hosea to show the stunning act of mercy that not only are Jews rescued from their sins, but Gentiles also. Will you look at this with me, please, for just a moment, and this will be our gateway to the Lord's table. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. In the coming weeks, we will explore the depths of God's mercy for Jews and Gentiles alike, but what a mercy it is that any of us gathered here this morning would be called the sons of the living God. 